0: heavenly father lord it is good to be together as men we thank you god for this opportunity to gather together around your word lord i pray that you would speak to us and encourage us as we look at these chapters in luke we thank you in advance for how you're going to speak to us we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Luke, and some have referred to the Gospel of Luke as the most scholarly work of the whole New Testament. And they also say that the man who wrote it, Dr. Luke himself, had the mind of a scientist but the heart of an artist. And I don't know if you've picked it up in his in his writing, but he loves details. He loves putting details in his writing. He was very thorough. Luke is the only Gentile writer of Scripture. He was well educated Greek. And some suggest that he was may have been a perfectionist. Any of you guys relate to that being a perfectionist? I'm sure some of you do. But he was a longtime friend of the Apostle Paul, and he joined the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey in Greece. Where in the book of Acts, which he also wrote the book of Acts, he wrote himself into the book of Acts. And you can see that in Acts chapter 16 to 18. In fact, Luke was there when Paul baptized Lydia, who was the first convert in Europe, in a river. And I bring that up because I just recently uh, led a trip of people to Greece and we went to that exact river. We went to that place where where Paul met Lydia and uh, she got baptized. It was so, so beautiful. And I love this baptismal that they created, obviously more modern, where it's a cross. And the idea is that you get in, on you, you go into the water on one side representing your old life and then you get baptized and you, and you walk out the other side representing your new life in Christ. So that was just one of the places we visited. But, but the Apostle Paul was there with Luke. We know they worked closely together. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. So Luke was more than just an acquaintance of Paul. He was probably Paul's doctor. One of the things I think is cool about our group is there's so many doctors here. There's there's a lot a lot of you guys here are doctors and it's it's comforting to be in a room full of great doctors, isn't it? So we we know if we have a medical emergency, we're we're covered. In Philemon, verse 24, Luke is referred to as a fellow worker with Paul. And then in Second Timothy, Chapter four, verse 11, Paul states that Luke was the only one who was with him when Paul was in the dungeon just right before he got executed for his faith, where the Apostle Paul got executed. So, uh, Joe mentioned last week that uh, many think the key verse in Luke's Gospel is one of the verses we're gonna look at this this morning. And it's Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In fact, you can outline the whole book using this verse. For the Son of Man came, chapters 1 through 4, to seek, chapters 4 to 21, and to save the lost, chapters 21 to 24. So you see his coming, his seeking, and his saving. A nice, simple outline. Well, this morning, we're going to look at chapters 17 through 20. Just to kind of give you an overview of what's happening in those chapters, we're not going to cover all these things. But I just want to give you a, a quick overview. In chapter 17, Jesus talks about forgiveness, faithfulness, thankfulness, and preparedness. And then in chapter 18, Jesus introduces us to a demanding widow, a deluded Pharisee, a dishonest youth, and a determined beggar. And I, I got this from Warren Wiersbe. I, I love how Wiersbe, you know, words things. He he does such a great job keeping it simple and practical. And in chapter 19, Jesus reaches Jerusalem, and he's portrayed as a savior, a master, and a king. And then finally, in chapter 20, Jesus is questioned about John the Baptist, about Caesar, about Moses, and about David. What I would like us to do this morning is I want to keep it simple and practical, and I want to do two things. First, we're going to focus on material that is unique to the book of Luke. If you notice on the top of this slide, it says about 60% of what he wrote in these chapters were unique to him, and they weren't included in the other Gospels. So we're going to look at mostly those passages with the exception of one passage, uh, the rich young ruler. The second thing I want us to do is to consider, as we look at these passages, to consider the difference between religion and the gospel. And why is that important? Well, first of all, because Jesus is constantly confronted by the religious people, and you just see it over and over again. That's what really stood out to me as I read and meditated and studied these passages, that he keeps confronting the difference between religion and the gospel. So that's what our focus is going to be on. But why is that important? Well, let me ask you kind of an off-the-wall question: How many layers does an onion have? How many layers does an onion have? Well, I asked Siri, and Siri says that it, a, a, a typical onion has eight to thirteen layers. The point of that is, onions have a lot of layers, but so do humans. And when I think about the human heart, I think that our heart is layer is layered layers and layers of sin layers and layers of sin. So when we come to Christ, that's just the starting point. But what God wants to do with the gospel is he wants to keep cutting through those layers of sin. I mean, the the selfishness of the human heart is, is so deep. And so we just see layers of selfishness, self-centeredness, of, and we're going to see it confronted in these chapters. And so I think Part of the job of the gospel is to cut through those layers. And as we grow in Christ, the only thing that has the power to cut through those layers and to transform the human heart is the gospel. But it's a lifelong process and it can be painful, but when we, we need to come to grips with the depth of our own sinfulness, but it's always for our good. So, I mean, let's be honest. Like, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we realize that we're just a shadow of what we what we should be because of all that sin that's around our hearts. We're just a shadow of what we could be if our life was completely yielded to God. Imagine that. Imagine what this world could do with men and women whose lives are completely yielded to God all the time. One day we will be that way. But we spend our whole life getting to that point. And I think one of the biggest obstacles that keep us from falling into that trap is religion, is religion. So we're going to start out Rex. We have somebody read chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Can I have a volunteer? Mark. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border
2: between Samaria and Galilee. Where are the other nine has no one returned to give praise to God, except this foreigner. Then he said to
0: him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Thank you. This is an interesting story, isn't it? Um, this is one of the the stories that, that Luke learned about, and he put in his gospel. That's unique to the book of Luke. Ten men with leprosy were all cured, but only one of them comes back to Jesus. Why is that? Why didn't all 10 men run back to Jesus and thank him for the healing they received? I mean, just think about this. How grateful those men should have been for the providence of God that brought Jesus into their area and for the love that caused Jesus to pay attention to them and their need for healing and for the grace and power of God that brought about their physical healing when they turned and, and headed back towards the priest. It's, it's an amazing thing that they experience this physical healing, but then one guy comes back. One guy comes back and, and thanks Jesus. So what do we learn here about the difference between religion and the gospel? Well, let me start by sharing something, just a foundational principle. What is the difference between religion and the gospel? Well, the the basic operating principle of religion is I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. Where the the basic operating principle of the gospel is I'm accepted by God, therefore I obey. So religion at its core is like man-centered. It's based on what I do. To, to please God. But the operating principle of the gospel is different. It's based on what Christ has done on my behalf. And I live in light of that. So those who've been changed by the gospel of Jesus understand that the gospel at its core is God-centered. It's based on what he did for me. So how does this appear in this passage? Well, the primary motivation for religion is based on either pride, fear or insecurity but the primary motivation of the gospel is based on gratitude and joy in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross so what stood out to me in this in this little par in this in this uh, story is thinking about that one guy who came back why did he come back he came back because of gratitude he was so grateful for what Jesus had done that he had healed, healed him physically And that gratitude brought him back to Jesus. And then Jesus says, you know what? You're not only healed physically, but you're healed spiritually as well. So it was just a good reminder to me that I think one of the keys to true spiritual transformation in our lives is gratitude. Gratitude for what Christ has done for us. That should be the driving force that really causes transformation in our lives and it's one of those things that cuts through those layers that i mentioned earlier the other nine were kind of focused on the here and now you know they cried out to jesus because they wanted to get healing in this life but the other guy seemed to be focused beyond the here and now he was thankful for being healed but he was also thinking about eternity so Let's move on to the next passage, chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Big Dan, can you read this?
3: And Jesus told his disciples the parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the word said, listen to what th- the unjust judge said, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Who cry out to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the find faith on the earth?
0: So, like I said this morning, we're gonna look at three encounters and three parables. And so this is the first parable. This is a parable about prayer, okay? Jesus is contrasting, he's not comparing, he's contrasting a selfish judge with our Heavenly Father. In that day, it was very difficult for poor widows to get justice because they lacked the means for bribing the officers who would get them to a judge in order to act on their behalf. But this widow would not quit until the judge had given her what she was supposed to get now if a selfish judge finally meets the needs of this poor widow how much more will god meet the needs of his children when they cry out to him so this parable is not urging us to pester god until he acts it's saying that we don't need to pester god because he's ready and willing to answer our prayers all the time so this should motivate us as disciples to pray consistently persistently and expectantly. But there's also some lessons here about the themes that I mentioned, the difference between religion and the gospel. You see, in religion, prayer is a duty. It's something you have to do. Where in the gospel, prayer is a privilege. And I think this parable brings it out that we have the privilege to talk to God anytime we want so many people if you fall into the trap of religion you you feel guilty because you don't pray enough or it, you know it's something you have to do and often in religion prayer is more impersonal and ritual in nature where in the gospel prayer is always personal and relationship based those who fall into the trap of religion they have a wrong view of God. They see God as more of a cold-hearted, unjust judge, where in the gospel, we can see God as a tender-hearted, loving father. And then in verse in, in verse 8, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Isn't that is an interesting thing that he tosses in there at the end of the parable? Will he find faith at the end of the earth? That reminded me of, how many righteous people were alive in the days of noah anybody remember i heard it yeah eight there were eight righteous people alive out of all the people on the earth only eight were saved and it's interesting that jesus says before i come back will i find faith on the earth and i think what what he's concerned about is will there be anyone with authentic faith Authentic faith. There'll be lots of religious people, no doubt. But will there be people with authentic faith? That's his concern. One more, and then we'll pause for questions. And this is this this is one of my favorite stories here. Chapter 18, verses nine to 14.
4: To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.
0: This parable is so rich with spiritual truth, isn't it? Jesus spoke often about the issue of righteousness. Pleading with his hear- hearers to understand their utter inability to be righteous enough to attain the kingdom of heaven, and the Pharisees on the other hand thought that their own goodness was so impressive that it would not fail to make them acceptable to God. The Pharisee in this story is the epitome of somebody who's self-justifying. Notice that his prayer has no ele- elements of confession. He doesn't ask for forgiveness for his sins perhaps because he believes he has nothing to confess nor is there any word of praise or thanksgiving to god his prayer is all about him i read one of the commentators said he has the eye disease <laughs> because if you notice in this parable he uses the he uses the the word i like 6 times i do this i do that i do that you know Yeah, it's it's all about him. But but unlike the Pharisee, we see the tax collector who says he was stood far off at a distance. And by the way, that's another thing I saw in these chapters is there's a couple different times where that phrase at a distance, people were at a distance. But whenever somebody was at a distance, Jesus was able to bring them close and bring them into relationship with him, you know, which just shows his heart for the lost. Uh, the people that were so far away from him, but the tax collector, you know, he he understood his unworthiness before God. He couldn't even lift up his eyes to, to heaven. He beats his breast and he appeals to God for His mercy. And I, I I just think there's there's some great lessons here, just reminding us about our our life and our attitude towards God, and to caution us against falling into the trap of religion where our prayers are very self-centered. You know, like I said, he he just kept praying about himself. In religion, our prayers can can also just reflect spiritual pride. You notice how he talks about how how much better he was than than other people. It seems like in religion, we we repent and pray less and less because we feel so good about ourselves and where we're at and we seek to justify ourselves that I think that's one of the biggest things is how often do we go to God and we we seek to justify ourselves or justify our sin. Where in the gospel prayers are God centered. You know, his prayer, this this prayer was so simple, but so powerful. God have mercy on me, the sinner. One of the things I brought back from Greece as a souvenir if you want to call it that i'm not real big into souvenirs but but i bought a ring that i found in a shop in a greek orthodox uh shop and it's the greek phrase and it says lord jesus christ have mercy on me in greek you know when i learned what it said i thought man that's a that's a powerful prayer that's something i need to think about so so i i bought that ring as a reminder a daily reminder a daily reminder that I need to, I, it's only out of his mercy that I have breath and life. But anyway, you see how the the tax collector, his prayer is God-centered. His prayer it reflects a humble dependence on God. and you And you see that I really think that as Christians, we should repent more and more because we realize those layers, those layers of onion in our hearts that, We're we're never we never arrive to where we should be. And then we recognize that we're justified by Christ alone. With that, let me pause and see if you guys have any insights, comments or questions.
4: It was interesting about the Pharisee. Instead of praising God,
5: he praised himself. I think there's two important points about lost souls. And I think the first you brought up, of course, is pride. And I think when how many times in the Bible, both the Old New Testament, does it say God hates pride? And I think so many times it makes me think of one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Uh, before I say that, there's one thing, a spirit of pride and a spirit of religion go hand in hand. And they strengthen each other by hiding each other. Pride keeps a person from admitting they have faith and religion covers up the pride by its spiritual behavior. But I wanted to go back to the scariest verse in the Bible, I think, is is when you go back to Matthew 7.22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You can see with a religious heart, a prideful heart. Look what I've done. It's all focused on me. But I think that warning is very, I think it speaks to a number of things in us as humans, but spiritual pride and religion can be a bad thing. We're gonna to jump to
0: Luke chapter 18, and we're actually gonna read these two stories about rich men. The, this first one uh, is, is very familiar. So we're gonna read this one and then read the, read the next one.
2: A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied,
0: What is impossible with man is possible with God. Okay, Rex, I want you to continue here for a second. I want you to keep that story in mind. We, it's a very familiar story. I, I know we've all heard that story. But pair that story with wh- what happens. Like especially that last thing says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Now we're jumping ahead to chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus.
2: Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached that spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly.
0: So there you have it. So one of the things that really struck out to me as I was reading this, and I, you know, I read these chapters over and over and over, is I think Luke wants us to compare these two rich men. He he puts them in there on purpose because you see, the first guy, the first story ends with it's impossible for any a rich man to be saved, but then all of a sudden we see. What's impossible with man is possible with God in Zacchaeus. So I think we're meant to compare those two people, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. We see that they were both wealthy. Okay, we, we get that. We see the rich young ruler was esteemed by others, where Zacchaeus was kind of looked down on by others because of the nature of his job and how he made his money. We see that the rich young ruler is unwilling to let go of his riches where Zacchaeus was willing to let go of his riches. And um, the one guy goes away sad. The other guy goes away filled with joy. And so, I mean, I just I just that that really stuck out to me that uh, and, and again and then the last verse and the story of Zacchaeus is that whole mission of Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Anybody else? Jim, you want to say something?
6: I think it's great that you're, uh, you, 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 we are to compare it and you are putting these stories together because I hadn't really thought of that before. But you know, what occurred to me in The Rich Young Ruler is God himself asked him to give up his riches. God himself, right? In Zacchaeus, God didn't ask for any of that. He just did it right? It was the work of God in his life, right? And that's what makes an impossible a response is the work of God in, in a man's life. That's good. Other
0: thoughts, Joe? Joe has some some thoughts, and there's so much richness here. Go ahead, Joe.
1: At the end of the story, Greg, uh, regarding the rich young ruler, and when, when someone asked the question, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And I put... Next to that in my Bible, great promise. It just isn't applicable to this situation, but to every situation with God. Mm. What is impossible with man is possible with God. We need to keep that in mind. Amen.
6: Amen. Dan. You know, when you compare them, both of them, it is interesting, though, that um, in the parable, something was asked of each of them right? So it was, go sell your possessions and follow me. the answer, his answer is basically no. And for Zacchaeus, it was come down from the tree. He could have said no. So it's God inviting us into fellowship with him. And we have a choice of how to respond.
0: Amen. I love that. Yeah. I want to hear anybody else has insights. I want to, I think this is a great time to share. Tim. Just a couple of thoughts.
7: Uh, in the story of the rich young ruler he comes to jesus and he says good teacher and jesus corrects him by saying only god is good what the rabbis would say at that point in time was if you address them as good they would say no only the scripture is good well here jesus points everybody back to uh, his heavenly father only god is good the other thing that jesus knows is the rich young ruler claims to have followed all the commandments However, in Israel at that time, there are many, many living in poverty, including widows and orphans. So if he's really living the life of following the Ten Commandments, he would be giving away his riches. So when God tells him to do that, his heart would have been ready to do that. His heart is not ready to do that. And that's why he walks away. In contrast with Zacchaeus, even though he's shunned by his Culture in his society because of his job, his heart is ready to receive God, and that's why we see the response that he gives. Oh. God has prepared his heart to follow Jesus, and that's what we see him doing.
0: Yes. And and I just want to add to that, and I, I would still want more comments, but we see that Zacchaeus's heart was ready by his childlike faith. I mean, Middle Eastern men did not run. I mean, Luke makes the point he ran and where does he go? He runs to a tree and climbs it. Well, who climbs trees? Kids, right? Little kids climb trees. And this reminds me of Jesus says, you must have a faith of a child to come to me. The thing that the rich young ruler lacked was that childlike faith. You know, he was putting all his all his trust in his riches. In fact, he's defined by his riches because we don't even know his real name. We just know him as a rich young ruler where we know Zacchaeus' name. But you see Zacchaeus' childlike faith. You can just picture this little guy running and climbing up that tree. And it just showed how he was, he was ready to meet, to meet with God. Joe. On a small side note, knowing that
2: stuff is put in the scripture for a purpose, I was wondering why they specifically mentioned a sycamore tree. And so I did a little study on this, and and several narratives came up. But one of them said, sycamore trees, the fruit is edible, like a fig tree, but it's a little bit not as sweet. However, in order for it to be edible, it has to be pierced in its young stage. And of all the trees that he could have climbed, why a sycamore tree? And so they're saying that the piercing of the fruit is a preclude or a, a sign of Jesus being pierced
0: mm. before he provides our fruit, our salvation. Just a cute little side story. That's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, we can still keep going. Go ahead, Go ahead Ben. Okay.
3: I thought that Zac, uh, Zacchaeus, uh, he was the last person on earth that was converted to Jesus' ministry before the cross and his conversion was the perfect example of why jesus was on earth Mm, that's good ed you want to make
6: comment the rich man he was asked to give away everything
0: zacchaeus gave away half of what he had ah that's a that's a good point well why was he asked to give away everything i think because It was recognized that that was the idol, right? That was what was standing before him in eternal life. Uh, And imagine if we all had that choice, you know, this is the one thing that's keeping you from eternal life. Boy, I hope I'd be willing to get rid of that, whatever that is. But you're right. That's a good that's a very good point.
6: So, you know, on the cursory reading of this, you might think that Jesus is not claiming to be God here. And the first question of the of the rich man is, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Only God says he's good. So Jesus is not claiming not to be deity here. Don't get that wrong. What he's doing is he say, he's saying there's something more important than your question. What do I have to do to eternity? To to inherit eternal life. And the answer to that question is, there's nothing you can do. You could give up all your, you could have done what Jesus asked, and you wouldn't have inherited eternal life. The big issue is who he is, right? Mm. He calls into question, why do you call me good? By contrast, and I love that we have both these guys here, Zacchaeus, what does he call Jesus? Lord Lord, he, he met him. He understood who he was. So anyway, this is not Jesus saying, oh, there's God's God. A father is God. I'm not God. No, no, he's not. He's not saying that at all, because we know that from other places in Scripture. He claims to be God. He's saying the issue is who I am, not what you do. Amen.
8: Yeah, just another comment on what Joe said. After he said that, I was thinking... Maybe instead of it of uh, Zacchaeus, you know, the fig tree has the the fruit had to be pierced. Maybe that's a re- representative of his heart had to be pierced. He was the fruit. And our hearts have to be pierced by the by the word of God or before we we can accept that. So mm-hmm. that's another
0: option, all right, Joe. I love this, by the way. I mean, this is one of the things I missed when our group got so big is, is to be able to have this interaction, this discussion, because I know there's so much wisdom at your tables. And so I love if you have something to share, please don't hesitate. I think this is a great.
1: Uh, Greg, back to the comment about uh, money, the rich man and Zacchaeus. It seems to me that the rich man, his money was who he was. He's identified as the rich man. And it is embedded in him. It's everything he is. It's all about him. And to give it all up was to actually say, you give your life up to Christ and then take on his life in you. But Zacchaeus knew that his money was sin money because he stole. He was a tax collector. He actually stole. He overcharged the people. He felt when he rid himself of that sin money, he was, he was letting God cleanse him. Mm -hmm. and there was a difference in giving it up for him he wanted to give it up amen
0: as i was reflecting on this story of zacchaeus and and i I, by the way i love that i love that discussion because there's so much depth there and i want you to walk away even continuing to think about those two stories and how they're both there the one guy walks away sad the one guy walks away glad you know it's pretty cool but The story of Zacchaeus reminded me of how God's working today to bring people to himself because there's many Zacchaeuses alive today. All right, let's move on. We're almost done. Can I have somebody volunteer to read chapter 19? This is another parable, chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. If you're using the screen, I've got two screens for this. So thanks, Fred.
9: While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of the servants and gave them ten minas. With this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, Yermina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then the other servant came and said, Sir, here is Yermina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew... Did you that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money in deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, But as far as the one who has nothing, even that what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Thanks, Fred.
0: Interesting parable. And there's some things you need to know about this parable. Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem and the people that when he when he stopped and told this parable, the people would have immediately thought of a recent event in history. 30 years before he told this parable to this group, this guy named Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great, went to Rome to ask Augustus Caesar for his kingdom. And some of the Jewish people sent a delegation to protest that appointment. So so the people would have kind of had that in their minds, like that 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 recent historical event. But then... You can also tie this parable to another historical event, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 that, that was coming. But I think ultimately this parable refers to this, the return of Christ. The fact that Jesus is saying, you know, and it's, it's, it's just kind of funny to think about this. How many times has he told his disciples he's going to Jerusalem to die? He's told them many times, at least three times in Luke, but they're clueless. They have no idea what that means. So they don't understand that he's going to die. He's going to raise again, and then he's going to ascend up to heaven. And there's going to be this long period of time before he returns. And so this parable kind of frames. What do we do during that long period of time before Christ returns? Now, we shouldn't confuse this parable with another parable, the parable of the talents, okay, Because the parable of the talents represent opportunities and abilities that we all have. And we all have different opportunities and abilities. So some are given more talents, some are given less talents. Do you notice in this parable it's about minas? And a mina, in my understanding, is it's like three months wages, but that each 10 person is everyone's given one mina, okay. So we we know it's not about gifts and talents. So what does the Mina represent? Well, I did a lot of research about this. What is he talking about when he talks about Amina? And, and I think the best explanation of what Amina represents in this parable is the deposit of the gospel that is given to each believer. You see, what does Second Corinthians chapter four say? We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're the jars of clay. What's the treasure? The treasure is the gospel. Every believer is given the gospel. What do we do with the gospel? Well, we can choose to just keep it to ourselves, or we can share it with others and multiply it, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you know, he says we're God's ambassadors, although God's making his appeal through us. So anyway, Again, I thought about this in terms of the difference between religion and the gospel. The one guy in the parable who doesn't do anything with his mina, he has no evidence of a changed life. His There's no evidence of a changed life, and, and he keeps the mina to himself. Where the other guys, you see this incredible evidence of, of changed life. They multiply the mina, and so they're given more opportunities to keep multiplying it. They share the the Mina with others. I, I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts or insights on this, or or comments you want to make. Any anybody want to make a comment?
8: Yeah, I would just. Uh, can we just reconcile? So if you go back to Luke, twelve forty eight, second part of that, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And then if we go back to what we just read. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Is that saying the same thing? It's just different.
0: I think it is saying the same thing. Well, it's kind of like if you're a successful businessman, what usually happens, you you get more responsibilities, right? You know, you, you keep getting more and more responsibilities because you, you want to keep being more and more successful, more multiplying. So a person that is, that is fruitful with their life, they're going to be put in positions where they have more and more influence, more and more opportunities to, to uh, spread the gospel, to, to multiply their faith. That's my thought. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts.
2: Isn't it interesting that the last guy says, you, you, so you reap what you don't sow, and they were all given the mina. He was given the Mina they are yeah. given. we're given salvation and he's telling. God. So I think that's, what's your religion point. This guy's pointing out, well, I just tried to, you know, I left it to myself, but, but I was doing it and I, I earned, I kept it. I kept it from going away. But I think that's really interesting that he makes that comment when he was given the Mina, right? So, right. And, and he just saw the other guy got 10 Minas back the other guy got or fought 10 cities or you know five cities so he saw that he's generous yet he still makes that comment so it just shows he never had he never accepted the gospel
0: and that's uh-huh. why in this parable he says you're out of here yeah now i should say there are there is some controversy of whether that third person is a believer or unbeliever most most people think he was unbeliever but you can make a case that he might have been a believer because we know in Corinthians, once again, that some people are going to be saved. But it says by fire, like that essentially they're going to be saved, but they have no rewards. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the the scripture verse I'm talking about that some people have little fruit in the, like little to no fruit in their life, but they will be saved. I, I think I'm, I'm, you know, lean more on the side that he probably wasn't a believer. He was... You know, that's, that's my thought there, Dave.
10: Yeah. Another thing that came to my mind is light. And Jesus said in another part of the gospel is, you know, you are the light of the world speaking to believers that are following him and no one takes a light or a lamp and hides it under a bush bushel or a basket. And that's the same thing in relation to the Mina that we as believers sharing the gospel today is so vital to not keep it within ourselves because of the situation we see happening in the world around us, even in our own neighborhoods or families. And, uh, and I was in a conversation with another believer recently. And I said, Joe, I said, you know, you're looking and you're troubled about what the, what's happening in the world. I said, you know, you can't take that light and hide it. You can't another another term that I've heard before in a scripture w- or a sermon was, we cannot be closet Christians today. Mm. The world needs to see the light of Christ So therefore, take your light out of that closet or that enclosed place you're keeping the gospel from others and share it with others while we have time. Amen. Amen. Louis, It's interesting. The Lord offers an
1: invitation to us. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men.
0: Amen. Period. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're almost done. Just in conclusion, I want you to go. I'm going back to the onion. Um, and I almost brought a real onion. I was going to cut it, but I didn't want to make you guys cry, you know, which is kind of appropriate, right? Because, you know, as 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 the gospel cuts through those, onion, those layers and we see our selfishness, it it should sadden us, you know, that we're so far from what we should be. Just some final thoughts and maybe some questions to ask ourselves is, you know, are we operating more out of religion Or are we operating under the power of the gospel to allow the gospel to cut through those layers? Is gratitude your main motivation in your relationship with Christ? That's a big one to me. What is driving your Christian life? Why? Why do you come here on Saturday mornings? Why do you go to church? Why do you read the Bible every day? What what is the driving motivation of your Christian life? I think one of the things that convicted me is it needs to be gratitude because I need to really and I think we spend our whole lives grasping what Christ actually did for us. The substitution that took place there, his righteousness for my sinfulness. I mean, it's it's huge. And then am I joyfully sharing the gospel with others? You know, or am I am I holding my mina to myself? Am I willing to am I willing to share it with people around me? And you know what? Sharing it could be just praying, praying for people that you know and your family and your friends, your coworkers that don't know Christ. Just begin by just praying for them, praying that God would open their hearts like like He did Zacchaeus. You know, nothing is impossible with God. No one is beyond the reach of salvation. In fact, all of us should should speak, speak better that God reached us, that we're here. When I came to Christ, when I was 16 years old, it wasn't a plan for my life. You know, I was heading down a different path, but uh, so we should all kind of have a a wonder and and a, a great, incredible gratitude for that God brought us to Christ. Any final comments or questions anyone wants to share? Okay, Tim.
7: Yeah, Greg, I, I thought that your overview today was really great. I, I just want to share with everyone a saying, because you're focused on gratitude, and the saying is, gratitude is the memory of the heart. And I think, you know, if Christ has pierced us to our heart, that's the source of our gratitude, is that we, in our lives see who he is, what he's done, and we should be eternally grateful.
5: Mm. Very good. Okay, Ken? I think this whole talking about pride and spirit, I think, you know, along with being grateful, I think it really is a testimony to us being humble because we bring nothing to the table. And when you think when he died on the cross, he died for the people there in Jerusalem, but also for the future unbelievers, us. Mm. And when you really bring that and think about that, how humble and how grateful should we be amen and even if you even if you
0: reflect on some of the stories we we talked about today it was the samaritan that had leprosy that came back to jesus the samaritan i mean the courage it took him for him to come back was huge but he but he was like i'm going back i'm going back and he got he got eternal life you know because of that Tim, would you mind, close us in prayer? Okay, let's
3: pray.
7: Father, uh, we are grateful for all that you are, your character, and how you not only have created, but then redeemed that which is yours. Father, thank you for allowing us to be children in your kingdom who are totally dependent upon you, and who trust you and love you. And through that trust, love, and gratitude are obedient to your word. May we be the servants who take the gospel you have given us and multiply it to your glory. And we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.
10: Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com.
0: Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace.
10: See you next time.